Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Dr. Caroline Leaf is a communication pathologist and cognitive neuroscientist with a master's and PhD in communication pathology, specializing in cognitive and metacognitive neuropsychology. Since the 1980s, she's researched the mind-brain connection, the nature of mental health, and the formation of memory. She was one of the first in her field to study how the brain can change with directed mind input, and she's the host of one of my favorite podcasts called Cleaning Up the Mental Mess. Caroline, welcome. It's such an honor to have you here. Thank you, Jason. I'm so excited. We, we had such a great talk recently, so I'm thrilled to take this deeper. Well, I, now I get to ask you the questions, which is more <laughs> of my comfort zone. So, oh, that's so funny. I remember asking you, "How does it feel being behind the being the one interviewed?" And you said you'd rather be the interviewer. So there yeah. you go. Today you're doing that. <laughs> so. I think we should start with neuroplasticity. So much of your work is centered around it. So can you explain to everyone what neuroplasticity is, how it works, and and why it's so critical to our well-being? Absolutely. Well, neuroplasticity, the most basic definition is that it's your, your brain can change. That's the most simple thing. And so starting to, to understand that your brain can change, you've got to think, well, what changes it? Because it's not going to change on its own. You know, your brain is just an organ and you have got a mind. So the first thing in understanding neuroplasticity is that your mind and your brain are separate, but inseparable. So, you know, always kind of use that analogy, separate, but inseparable. And so it's your mind that changes your brain. Your brain's never the same. It's always changing with every, from the moment you open your eyes till the moment you go to sleep and while you're asleep, your brain is changing. So it's, it's constantly, even though it's a physical structure, it's constantly changing because of our experiences. So during the day, we use our mind which is how we think and feel and choose. Those three go together. And as we think, feel, and choose, we build thoughts. So mind is the thinking, feeling, choosing, building thoughts, which are contain memories and so on in response to life. And that is then pushed through the brain, and then the brain responds by actually building those into physical structures. And I know that sounds quite complicated, but it's uh, and we can we can unpack that. But essentially, as you think, feel, and choose, you are you are generating literally an energy, a quantum energy wave through your brain, and then your brain responds electromagnetically, chemically, and genetically. And it takes what you are respond, what you're thinking, feeling, and choosing, and genetically, it's with your genes switch on, and you make little proteins, and you grow trees. And it's really cool because you literally grow, thoughts look like trees in your brain. And those trees are constantly changing. Like a tree keeps growing, thoughts keep growing. And that's really what neuroplasticity is. And we control it. We we direct that neuroplasticity because whether you direct it or not, you're always directing it, but whether you direct it in a positive or negative direction, neuroplasticity is always happening. So we call that the plastic paradox because 
it's always changing. Your brain's always changing as a result of your thinking, feeling, choosing, and what you eat and your, your diet, exercise, all of that contributes to. So you may as well direct your neuroplasticity. And that's what I've spent 38 years researching is what does that mean to build a thought? What is your mind? What is your brain? What is neuroplasticity? And how do you direct the process so that your brain works for you and not against you? So how do we do that? How do we make our brain work for us? How do we build that great, healthy, beautiful oak tree in our brain? How, how do we make the brain work in a way that is productive and healthy and happy versus negative, anxious, uh, and uncontrollable toxic. and toxic? <laughs> Well, that's that's such a good question because 38 years ago when I started in this field and I what told my professors I want to research that the mind can change the brain and how to do it, the exact question you've just asked me, I was told by a lot of my professors that that was a ridiculous question. In fact, I've done a TED talk on this. And the, the, what they said to me was that the brain can't change. That was in the 80s. By, so I started doing this neuroplasticity research right back in the 80s and saying, well, listen, I'll show you that your brain does change. And there were few of us around the world working in this area. So what I did to answer your question was I worked with people with all kinds of brain damage. I took the worst case scenarios that I could find. So I took people who had had traumatic brain injuries and were in a comas for weeks and people that they that they, the environment, the medical environment had pretty much written off and the therapeutic environment. And I started teaching them how to use their mind to change their brain. And the results were phenomenal. I mean, literally, I can tell you thousands of stories, but and uh, the key thing is that like one particular subject, one particular patient of mine had been in a coma for two weeks, had a terrible car accident. She was 18 at the time, of 17 at the time of her accident. Her story is phenomenal to, to, to also lead into answering directly what your question was, in that she was a an average student, had this terrible accident, was written off by the neurologist, told by her parents that you know, the parents were told, listen, just give up. She's not going to ever, ever recover. She did recover, but she was on a second grade level, more or less. And she kind of got stuck there and, they, and then they approached me. And I started teaching her how to use her mind to change her brain. And I wasn't sure then how it would work because it was the early days of my research. She was one of my first um, subjects in one of my first clinical trials. And within eight months, this young girl called up from second grade to 12th grade, finished 12th grade with better grades than what she had before. Her IQ, which is very, not a good measure, but it gives you some sort of indication. We did lots of different measures of intellectual performance, um, showed that she'd gone off the scales, that she was now a genius. So here we have someone who had terrible brain damage, evidence of terrible brain damage, yet she was functioning at a level higher. So what did I do with her? I simply taught her how to take, her schoolwork was very important for her. So I took what was important to her in her life at the time and that was she wanted to finish school with her peer group that was her need that was her purpose so I worked around her purpose and I taught her how to learn so I taught her how to direct her mind by learning how to learn so mind I call that brain building and it's Jason it's the key in getting control back over your brain it's an under spoken of it's an under um, it's, an, it's, it's not recognized sufficiently in how important it is for mental health, building your brain. So we took her schoolwork and I was helping her go through a process of how to take 
chunks of information, process those, understand them, and build them into useful memories so that she could actually go and write exams and do as well as she did. She became the most brilliant mathematician, and she couldn't even do maths before her accident. So with brain damage, she became a, a brilliant mathematician because she learned how to direct her brain. So I took her through the process of how to learn. In that process of how to learn, I had developed a five-step technique that was based on incredibly complex science that we can talk a little bit about in a very simple way in a a moment. But I had tried to find out, before I was working with her, I'd been researching how can you use your mind to change your brain? What is mind? What is the thought? How do you build a thought in your brain? How do you make sure that thought that you build in your brain is something useful for schoolwork or for your career or just for your life to manage toxic issues and change and trauma and so on? So in that process, I looked at all the ways that the brain does all the complex neurophysiology and neuroscience and quantum physics and psychoneuroimmunology. And I looked at many different fields and worked out the basic process and then refined this down to a five-step simple process because obviously when you're working with people with severe trauma or any kind of issue, you can't give them complex science. It had to be simple. So I took very complex science, simplified it, developed a five-step process, which I taught this particular subject, and I taught her how to build her brain. And we can talk about what that is in a moment. Once she was building her brain, her resilience increased. She started learning skills. She started relearning her in eight months, she caught up from second grade to 12th grade and caught up with her peer group. So her knowledge base increased. While we were building her brain, we then started dealing with the emotional traumas, the emotional traumas of having gone through what she went through, of the car accident, of she was a little bit of a um, outcast at school, bullied a little bit. So there was trauma there. So in the brain building process, we then started moving into when she was stronger, into dealing with the emotional trauma. And that's when I started developing the trauma application. At the same time, I was working in South Africa in the apartheid era, pre-apartheid, the transition and post-apartheid. So the whole way through, I was in that, that was my time of 25 years that I worked clinically there. So in that, when it was still apartheid and I used to go out into all the very dangerous areas that no one came out alive, but they they never, I could go anywhere because I went in with a message of hope. I would go into schools, community centers, and I would teach them these five steps. I would teach them how to learn because if you've got knowledge and you get educated and you can get an education, you can start changing your life. And if you can manage your emotions and so on, you can. So I taught that and I also worked in, in Rwanda after the genocide. So I started using these concepts for um, education, trauma, and, and it was phenomenal. People were improving 35 to 75%. The results were, I don't even know how to explain how mind-blowing they were. So do you want me to tell you what the five steps are? I would love that. Okay, so I'll give you a big broad overview, and then I've got lots of materials where people can dive in deep, including an app where they can dive in deep into these. And I'm just finishing a book now called Cleaning Up the Mental Mess, and that's these. it's the most recent updated clinical trial stuff, which maybe we can talk about in a moment too. Okay, so basically in order for us to direct our brain neuroplasticity, we need to first be aware, and that's uh, we need to embrace, we need to gather awareness, we need to, the, and this is post-meditation. So there's a preparation phase and that's where your mindfulness, meditation, breath work, um, diet, exercise, all those are preparing your brain. So we can't just go and eat the modern American diet, not calm our mind down and never do exercise and expect our brain to work well. So those are logical and you handle that very well in your wellness space in that you, in Mind Body Green, you teach us so much about that. So that's, a, I always taught my patients and all, everyone I've worked gone through, I always taught them the basics of meditation, the basics of breath work, and obviously 
eating for your brain and, and so on. So, so that's always, but then the five steps is beyond that. Because what I found from my research is that those are very important. They're vital. They change the brain. They change how the brain functions. But they don't always have the same level of sustainability that we should have. So they don't carry through. We have to go beyond, do those and go beyond. So the five steps are a very directed mind management process that help you to drive plasticity in the direction you want it to go. Because as I said in the first question, plasticity happens whether you like it or not. So you may as well control the process. So the first thing is to become very self-regulated, very gather awareness. I call it the gather step. It's becoming, it's embracing, embracing how do I feel in the moment? And that's why I said follow it after meditation. So it's super easy when you've done a, a even a three-minute meditation, you're already in that kind of zone. But this is now where you in, become quite intellectual. It's very spiritual. It's very deep. It's very tapping into the depths of who you are. It activates the um, in in the in terms of neural neuroscience. If we look at, at neuro, neuro, and uh, technology to look inside the brain, we will see tremendous amount of action happening in what we call the non-conscious mind, which is the deepest part of you. So gathering is becoming aware. So in the case of building your brain it's aware of okay i've got to study for this math exam and here is the actual math chapter and here is the actual math work and these are the sections so it's becoming aware of it's not just diving in it's it's, it's becoming aware if it was an emotional trauma it is listening to the emotional and physical warning signals that are moving from what we call the non-conscious mind to the subconscious mind to the conscious mind mind has got three levels non-conscious being the deepest biggest 99 percent part of you subconscious is the is space between the deep part and the conscious awareness and sub, so th so that's where the promptings you know you get that sense of oh something's worrying me or i can feel something's kind of worrying right me. Or, or just that feeling too it's sort of like a mindfulness based approach where you say hey like i'm feeling this is me about to get really angry i'm observing that thought yes that's exactly <laughs> the space in between like and, and it the is very much in between. A, yeah that's that's your subconscious. So that's what meditation does. It preps you. It preps you. It does what we in the brain. It changes the energy, and we get what we call an alpha bridge in the brain, which is a frequency. Because your brain, as you're thinking and feeling and choosing, as you're doing these five steps, as you're going through life, as you're just responding, your brain responds about um, with energy. The energy beings. You're always generating energy, and a quant a QEEG, which is the technology I use, um, picks up that energy. Now alpha, when you meditate and you become mindful, and as you go into the gather step, you are increasing the alpha bridge, and the alpha bridge is, it means that it's increasing a frequency that enables you to tune into what is that something that's making that hovering anxiety, or that sense of lack of peace, or that thing, something's wrong, I need to touch on it. So the first step is to be, in, in the terms of emotional stuff, is to become aware of those signals. The first step in brain building is to make, is to become very focused on what you are, gather awareness of what you're going to be learning. So whether it's schoolwork, whether it's preparing for an interview, like if I, when I prepare for your interview, I've got to gather awareness of what you do, you know. So in other words, that's how practical it is. So we brain build, we we uh, detox two two different things for the five steps first step is gather so it's a very directed process of being aware of what am i thinking what's going on what are my my emotional warning signals am i feeling anxiety is it hovering anxiety am i feeling depression am i feeling frustration am i feeling irritation what's this nagging sense of whatever so that's the gathering once you gather you now have this up and it's in the conscious mind. Now, this is where neuroplasticity kicks in beautifully because as soon as you pull something up, that 
a gathering awareness is if you imagine taking something out from out of the sea, you put you drop something in your bathtub or something and you're pulling it out. It's a pulling out from the non-conscious to the conscious. What we've seen from neuroscience is that you can't change anything. You can't direct neuroplasticity. You can't make a change in a trauma, a toxic habit, or learn something new till you're consciously aware of it. But you have to be consciously aware of it. So your non-conscious is your truth, where everything is stored, your memories, etc. But it, so, And it doesn't like chaos. So when we've got a toxic trauma or a frustration or an irritation or a bad habit or a suppression of something or bullying or something that's worrying us, that creates a very very um, uncomfortable state in the non-conscious that so sends these prompts to the subconscious mind and then you get gather awareness of it. So the second step is taking what you're aware of and being very focused. So it's called reflection. It's very focused. It's very deliberate. It's asking the why questions. It's looking at the emotional warning signal. What is this depression telling me? And then looking at the information of that signal what's the information in other words what are the memories so a thought is a big thing imagine a big tree when i gather awareness of a thought i'm gathering awareness of a concept like maybe it's about a, a one of your children or something at work or something that's happened or COVID 19 or whatever but it's a big thought it's a big tree but the tree's got branches and leaves and nodes and and stuff and a trunk and roots so those are all all the trees and the branches and so on, those are the memories, the information and the emotions and the physical embodiment of the memory, of the thought. So thoughts, this big thing. So when you gather it, you're bringing up information and emotions and a physical response in your body. Because right down to the cellular level, and we have somewhere between 30 and 50 million, maybe even 100, sorry, trillion between 30 to 100 trillion cells in our brain and our body. We don't quite know how many. It's a lot. And if every cell of our body will store in the DNA, will store an embodiment of a memory. So mem th thoughts are, are powerful. They, 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 they are actually universe. Uh, they're, they're like a, a, a universe, literally. Every thought is like a universe. And it's endless and it's connected to other thoughts. So this is why, for example, someone who's gone through a trauma. I was just speaking to a war vet yesterday, a Navy SEAL, and was just talking about... Um, it, when you're going through something where they have a, you know, some kind of a, that's easiest to visualize when you talk about trauma, is someone who's gone through something. And he was just talking about one of his experiences. And you could see the changes in his face. And even though it's years ago, because when that thought comes up of that particular incident, it's got the thought tree. Then there's all the memories in the tree and all the emotions and all the bodily reaction at the time that you embed it. And even if you, let's say you sneezed at the time it happened, that sneeze sensation comes back. So everything comes back. And that's why it's so overwhelming and so painful that so often people at the reflect stage where they now start having to say, okay, well, what does this? depression mean because the depression's not the it the anxiety is not the it the depression the anxiety those are the warning signals that there's something underneath in this particular war vet's case it was that he that it was that particular incident which then linked to a whole lot of stuff that was happening in afghanistan and etc etc so there was a whole lot of stuff in the tree and linked to other trees and so it was unpacking all of those the reflex step if you're detoxing and dealing with traumas, dealing with that kind of thing, um, is very hard. It's not easy. So this is why it's a lot of people will push it back down. Sometimes we do have to push things back down for a time because we're not quite ready to deal with stuff yet. And that's where the meditation and the gathering back and forth gets you into the state where you are ready to start dealing. So the second step is very much a dealing with. It's very much a digging. 
The key thing, Jason, is that you don't do it all in one sitting. That's huge. When I work with my patients, when it came to emotional trauma, you limit it to 7 to 30 minutes a day, max. 7 to 30 minutes, and then you you can spend as much time as you want brain building, because brain building is building resilience, and that's just learning stuff. You can, And brain building can be done on anything, schoolwork, a newspaper article, things that you're interested in, anything you want to learn. We should be brain building at least for two hours every day anyway. But detoxing, when it's a trauma or a toxic habit, especially a trauma, because of the emotional weighting, we need to limit that to around 7 to 16 minutes a day. So you're handling a little bit at a time. So what I always tell my patients and where I've designed my program that's been very, very scientifically and clinically researched is that you spend, you know, maybe between one and a half and three minutes to five minutes gathering and then around one and a half to three minutes to five minutes in the reflect stage. So you're not going to solve it all in one day. Rome wasn't built in a day philosophy. You're going to then move to the next phase in that moment. So let's say I'm in day one of detoxing a trauma. If I was working with this Navy SEAL, for example, I would say, okay, day one, we're going to spend as little time as possible, literally one and a half minutes per each session. Maybe as you're moving on, you can max it out to maybe five to seven minutes per session, but you've got 35 steps and the max you should do is 30 minutes. So there's, that's very limited. And the reason being is because emotions can overwhelm. When emotions fly, the emotions on the tree, when they release, that causes a massive amount of what we call high beta in the brain. And high beta is very reflective of anxiety. And anxiety is when we feel we have no control. It's this hovering state. You get a, a hovering low-key anxiety, which a lot of us are in at the moment with COVID. And then you get the anxiety that comes with the adrenaline rush, which is attached to a particular memory, which can completely throw you. And the more you suppress it, the worse that anxiety becomes. Anxiety per se is not an it. Anxiety is a... Um, a, a warning, a description, a warning signal and it's saying to you, hey, you are anxious about something, which is why you need to go gather this, find the tree and start look, reading the branches on the tree. So the reflect step is reading the branches and the emotions on the tree. As you do that, you go to step three and step three is right. We know from so much research, everyone tells us journal, write things down. There's so much science behind writing. When you write, you activate different parts of the brain, for example, the basal ganglia, the amygdala, the hippocampus, the uh, the frontal prefrontal cortex, all, but we activate it in a, in a beautiful wave. Think of waves on a beach. Think of the waves in the sea. In the depths, if you go out deeper, it's like a big swell. Then as you come in closer, the swell gets a little bit smaller, then it goes into a big wave, and then the wave breaks on the beach, and then there's ripples. That's kind of how the brain works when you are processing stuff. It works through those waves back and forth, a different, then the wave goes back, and then the whole thing starts again. When you're anxious, that wave is not a nice wave. It's a tsunami. So it just floods. It just floods and that causes a lot of damage to the neurons in the brain to the cells of the body we break down and we break down our immune system that's the psycho neuroimmunology link um, we we raise things like homocysteine which i know will interest you because we discussed <laughs> that last time and that's directly um blood is a very you can't measure mental health blood from mental health it's too up and down but what we can do over time is we can read um how our anxiety and stuff is being managed and cortisol and homocysteine are very reflective of that those two particularly working together very reflective of um managing toxic stress and that kind of stuff but blood is very up and down what's very clear is the brain will read what's happening on the non-conscious level so we can be lying to ourselves we can we can have this issue come up 
and we can start this digging and then we say, I can't do this. And we can push it down and pretend everything's fine. That will increase anxiety. That will increase high beta. In terms of the wave analogy, high beta is like the wave that crashes. Now, we know that if a wave crashes and dumps you, if you've all been dumped in the sea by a wave that gets big and it dumps you, it's quite overwhelming. But if you can surf the wave and come in gently and it's it's a gentle process, that's a different story. Anxiety is like being dumped constantly over and over and over again. So that's why you don't want to stay in that state when you're detoxing too long. So the, then the fourth step, the third step, the writing helps you to get this out because if you don't get things out, you keep it in and that increases high beta. It makes gamma, which is a learning wave. All these waves deal with neuroplasticity. When I talk about gamma, beta, high, um, high beta, these are just energy frequencies that tell us that the learning is going through different phases. The brain is changing. The neuroplasticity is happening. And it's, it's, an, it's a nice ordered process. Well, it should be when we direct it, when we mind manage. When we don't mind manage, it becomes chaos. So when we do mind manage and we in the seven minutes thing and we in step three and we're writing it down, we are actually allowing it to get out. We, we're allowing the basal ganglia, which are deep down inside the brain, to um, get cognitive fluency, to kind of um, activate what we call the default mode network. And all these fancy things happen in the brain. And we start, even though you may be crying. You may be feeling your heart palpitating. You may be in a stress response, but now the stress response will be working for you. By writing it down, you're getting that out. Otherwise, you're pushing it into your body and causing damage right down to the level of your cells. In my most recent clinical trial, we were evaluating all these things and testing out this five-step process once again, my most updated version of it. And one of the things that was very evident was when people – uh, push it down. Um, one of the things that can go wrong in your cells is that your telomeres, which are the little caps on the end of chromosomes, you've got your chromosomes, which look like X's and they're like socks or shoelaces. And the, you know, the little plastic on shoelaces when they wear off, it's pretty hard to use your shoelace. So when we are in these states of toxic stress and we keep pushing them down, keep pushing them down, we don't want to face them, we don't want to work through the pain, we don't want to embrace and process we are going to wear the shoelace off and we age our cells. Well, so there's I a direct correlation between telomere length and longevity. So longer telomeres, longer longer life. And there's amazing work from Alyssa Apple. Um, uh, yes, uh, yeah. yes, 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 one of yeah. my heroes. So yeah. we also just did some research based on some of her models. And um, what I found was that within nine weeks, we changed telomere length. So the five-step process that wow. I'm describing you now we changed telomere length within nine weeks so the control group that was um, not getting the five steps that were just getting awareness we just they just did the profiles to get awareness so they were aware of they were answering all these questions so they became aware of all this stuff but they didn't have a management technique their telomeres decreased in length whereas the ones that um, had the five-step process where they were managing their mind they increased in length and that's quite quite unusual as apple as uh, dr apple will say that the newest research now is showing that that you can actually direct you can you can see change in as early as a few weeks so we were showing that in in our research which is amazing because that means you can reverse telomere length in that period of time which is quite phenomenal. So that means your cell health is healthier. Your biological age is healthier. So we found in our subjects that we're not managing stress, not managing anxiety, not managing mind, not building their brain. Their telomere length shortened which and their biological age, which means their body was older than the actual chronological age. And we, with the experimental group, we were, we were able to reverse that. And that's in as short as nine weeks. So what we also found, neuroplasticity has a pattern and that pattern is it takes 63 days for a thought to be pulled up, gathered, 
reflect it on, you write about it, you do, and then step four and step five, which I'll explain in a moment, but that whole, you go through all five steps and it, and it takes 63 days to literally rewire that thought and build a healthy new thought tree that actually now enables you to move forward. So it takes 63 days for neuroplastic habit formation to take place, which we call automatization. So people talk about 21 days to build a habit. No, 21 days to actually break down the thought tree and start the building. But the real neuroplasticity happens after 63 days. So step four is then just to check what you've written. And that's an incredibly important process to go back and reconceptualize. Because if you are negative and seeing that, oh gosh, I'm just like, this is just terrible, terrible, terrible. The recheck step looks at what you've written and helps you. Okay, how can I have a possibilities mindset? How can I be like Thomas Edison who failed a thousand times at the light bulb, but he didn't see it as a failure. He said, okay, there's a thousand things I don't I've learned that I mustn't do. So that's what we do in the recheck step is we look at how can we do this differently? How can we reconcept? So you don't get rid of your story because it's your story. You've got to keep your story, but you've got to take the sting out the emotions, see it differently so that your story becomes something that you that is um, builds your resilience, builds your um, people that have gone through stuff are the ones that that make it. This is what this Navy SEAL was saying to me yesterday, actually, that the ones that of the 225 in his class, 23 made it. And the ones that made it were the ones that used their mind and the ones that had been through adversity. So when you are prepared to face adversity and go through adversity, which is what I showed in my trials as well, you are going to direct your neuroplasticity. And we in a world, Jason, where we are told so much now that if you're in, if you've got, if you've anxious, you've got a clinical anxiety disorder and you need medication, hopefully a bit of psychotherapy. And if you're lucky enough to get into a wellness frame of mind, a doctor who's got a wellness frame of mind, they will tell you about meditation and diet. But not everyone is lucky to get that. So most people, if you look at the numbers, are getting labeled with a clinical anxiety as though they have an illness like cancer, and that's not even scientific, and are getting drugged and maybe a bit of psychotherapy. But what we're seeing is that that actually makes it worse. What we need to do is have a process of managing our mind. And I've spoken about now the extreme process, the extreme, like someone who's been through a trauma. But this is for day-to-day stuff too. So the fifth step is is an act of reach where you, you, you take what you've written down and you've reconceptualized. Now you go and do it. A simple little act of thing. So, for example, maybe it is this Navy SEAL was – that every time that thought came up, what he would do today was he would, for his little act of reach, would be something as simple as, I'm actually just going to breathe to the count of three each time this comes up. Or it could be a phrase, it's going to be okay. Or it's, so an act of reach is something that you just say to yourself at least seven times during the day. You can put it on your phone or whatever, just to remind yourself consciously that you're getting control, that you that hope is coming back. And that very those five steps are totally transforming the brain. So I've said such a lot. I don't know if you want to unpack it. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it, it's it's tremendously helpful. And and I think a theme in the five steps is anxiety. And in the context of COVID-19, you know, as we think about anxiety and mental health, uh, what's a healthy dose of anxiety? And when does it become toxic in your opinion? I'm so glad you asked that question. Anxiety and depression are something that every human experiences. So it's 
totally normal to have anxiety. So that's one of the first things we need to understand. So I would say if you an easy way to visualize is if you think of a just a scale that goes from one to ten. Just think of a, a one to ten on a, like a number line or something, and that's an anxiety scale. And as humans, we all experience, we all go up and down that scale depending on what's happening in our life. And it's very normal. Anxiety is a totally normal response to stuff that feels uncertain, to stuff that we feel we can't control, to stuff that doesn't seem to have a nice little formula. And it's very healthy because it prompts us to get into a possibilities mindset, a state of expectation, to push through the adversity, to not squash the pain down. It's good. That's a healthy level of anxiety. Anxiety is always healthy. Now, I know this sounds so contradictory, unless unmanaged. So managed anxiety is very good for you because it's a driver. It'll help you to throw your body into positive stress. For example, when you have, when you see anxiety not as the scary enemy, but as your friend, you actually change the way that your blood flows in your heart in an instant. And so your blood vessels around your heart will dilate and that will pump more blood to your brain and more oxygen to your brain. And 1400 neurophysiological responses will now work for you instead of against you. So just by you saying, okay, but just by me telling your audience, it's okay to feel anxious. In fact, embrace it. It's even celebrate it because if you celebrate your anxiety, which is such a weird concept, but listen to what I'm saying. By celebrating your anxiety, you aren't denying and suppressing. You're bringing it into your conscious awareness. Now you're consciously aware you're anxious. Now you can actually use neuroplasticity to your advantage. Because when you're conscious of something, now you can change it. But when you're non-conscious about it, when it's in your non-conscious mind, it's still active, but you're not consciously aware of it. So healthy anxiety is that what I've described, where we see, okay, I feel a bit anxious. I'm feeling my heart palp palpitating. I can feel the stress response. What is this telling me? How can I transfer this energy? Because energy anxiety is energy. When we in a, 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 in the sort of in in a good anxiety, we um, have all those waves flowing, the gamma, alpha, beta, theta, all flowing like the waves on the beach, etc. Now, energy doesn't ever just disappear. Remember from our days at school, energy doesn't just disappear; it transfers. So when we start accumulating without by suppressing and not dealing when we just allow one thing after another to keep hitting us, but we don't, we kind of like something happens, we uh, we read a newspaper article, someone argues with us or whatever, we COVID, all the different things happening and we just keep taking it in data gathering. But we don't data process. We will get go to number 10 or number nine and get a red brain. Literally, we'll see from a QEEG that someone who goes into that high beta, high gamma, the, the wave becoming a tsunami, we call it a red brain. And you can get out of a red brain very quickly. That's now where anxiety is working against you. This is now going to cause 1,400 neurophysiological responses to work against you instead of for you. This is where the blood vessels around your heart will contract instead of dilate. Now you'll have less oxygen and less blood flow to the brain, less clarity of thought. But by regrouping and saying, okay, I feel crazy. My mind's a mess. I'm chaotic. I'm frightened. Get it out. As you say, as you gather awareness, and express it as specifically as you can. You can take that unmanaged anxiety and start giving it a name. And you can use techniques. Then you can move, once you've gathered awareness, you can move move into the second step, which is reflecting. Okay, so why am I feeling so anxious? Is it because I've read 50 newspaper articles today? I've spent five hours just reading toxic stuff, or I haven't processed, or I'm now in the body, I'm shoving this down and I'm thinking, okay, one more reason why I'm going to die, or one more reason why my business is never going to 
recover. One worry, am I just doing that? Am I just accumulating data and not actually thinking it through? That's going to push you into that brain. But by gathering it and saying, okay, I feel like this, immediately the red brain starts reducing. You can start directing, admitting that fear. Going into the reflect, the second step, you can then start saying things to yourself like, okay, I feel like this This is making me very anxious. What's on my tree? Okay, I did read too much of this today. I did that. And you start digging around and finding. And as you're doing that, you start dropping the anxiety levels. You might still be feeling anxious and that's okay. You will. So don't fight it. But just ta- and give yourself time. It's, take, it's going to take you 63 days. We've been in this COVID now for over 63 days. We've all become COVID addicts. Literally. And we've, we've got to now unwind that pattern. We've got to now recreate for the for the future. So give yourself grace and just do a little bit each day. But by being more aware, self-regulating that in that reflect stage is very important. What I also tell people to do in that reflect stage for things for COVID, for example, which is such a good example, is you can use what I call the multiple perspective advantage, which is a technique that works without fail every time in that second stage, the reflect stage. And it is standing back and observing yourself thinking, feeling, and choosing. So you literally stand back, almost like those Scrooge, do you remember Scro- the Scrooge movies where he would go back into his child and he would, he would watch himself growing up? Do you remember, you know, like you, you're there, but you, so that, that's an MPA. That's going into your multiple perspective advantage. Go and look at yourself in a day. Go and look at yourself yesterday. Stand back, observe your own thinking. Translate that into the moment. How are you reacting right now as you're listening? How are you reacting when you read that next article? How are you reacting uh, in terms of your thinking, feeling, and choosing in that conversation, how often are you talking about COVID? So in other words, you need to gather data. You need to gather data and then process that data. And then you can see, okay, write down, I'm doing this, this, and this, and this, and this. And that's contributing to my anxiety. Recheck. Okay, so now I can write down what can I, how can I redesign this? Active reach. The MPA in the second step allows you to divorce yourself from the emotions that enmesh you. For the first 90 seconds that you're exposed to something, you have so many chemicals flowing, so much energy flowing that you actually can't think straight. So by going through these five steps, you slow that process down and you get your brain and your body chemically and energetically into a state that you can think more clearly. So you're transferring energy away from the fear, which is increasing the anxiety to, okay, I am anxious, but... Now we're going to analyze. Does that make sense? So you're yeah. transferring energy. It's a bit like when you go and do exercise and you stiffen your do too much and you get stiff muscles and then you have to massage and stretch to that's what we're kind of doing here. We build too much, but we have to take the time to stretch and to massage and so you mentioned exercise, stretching, massage. <laughs> what are some of the things, you know, let's just say say we don't suffer from anxiety, although I think everyone's a little on edge right now. You know, what are some of the things that everyone out there should be doing, could be doing to just take care of our mental health? Well, one of the first things that I would recommend, which is so powerful and build resilience just like that, is brain building. So find something that you're interested in. And, you know, it could be a beautiful storybook. It's a great time to read storybooks because it's nice to actually read stories. So it's, you know, there's some beautiful fiction, nonfiction out there that people can read. Anything, if you're interested in gardening, if you're interested in wellness, I mean, listen, the people can go and read blogs on your podcast, on your Mind Body Green webpage. Get information and study it. Studying our brains designed to grow 
daily. That's neuroplasticity. And what people don't realize is that when we don't learn new information daily, in a very not just read it, not just gather it, but actually process it that to the point where you could actually give a lecture on it or go and write an exam. That's brain building. Brain building is taking knowledge and transforming it so that you could actually speak about it in a conversation or teach it or whatever. That is very healthy. It detoxes the brain. It reduces anxiety. Your brain builds up toxic waste if you don't keep learning. And so every morning when you wake up, you've got millions of new neurons called neurogenesis. And they are designed to be incorporated into the networks of your brain during the day and by your mind. So as you're learning, you use those. And as you're learning, you give your brain great exercise. So Brain building is, is is literally a workout for your brain, increases resilience, changes the, it releases many chemicals, one of which is called anandamide, which is the bliss hormone. And when that hormone starts flowing, you have a lot more clarity of mind. And it's a cascade. It's never just one thing. Your Everything changes, blood work, chemistry, telomeres, everything. So that's something that I, in my daily routine um, that I train my patients. It's in my, I've just written this whole routine up in my new book. It's, it's I teach it all the time. Is brain building. First thing, after I would recommend meditate first. Do a little meditation and a bit of breath work. In what there's so many great ones out there. I, I like the Wim Hof method. Um, you know these different these different types. Okay, so I would always start with a little bit of that and then go into brain building. Brain building. How often? If you can spread it during the day, I recommend two hours during the day. That sounds crazy, but you're reading anyway. You are you are on Facebook and Instagram anyway. Turn that time into something constructive. Then I would recommend spending at least at around seven minutes detoxing. Um, so this is all mind work still. So doing the five steps to detox, work on something because it's a lifestyle. Also, if you master the five steps, you don't only use them for healing trauma, but also the day-to-day stuff. So let's say now you're in a meeting or you're on a Zoom call and someone is very toxic and they are throwing toxic words at you. What do you do in that moment? to handle that so that you don't get caught up and then you feel terrible afterwards and the whole day is messed up. The five steps, I call them five-step hacks. You can use the five steps to deal with toxic words, toxic emotions, toxic situations on the spot, uh, batting to forgive someone, et cetera, et cetera. So that's a philosophy that drags through the day. Then always physical exercise, everyone knows the benefits. We know it's 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 for it reduces depression. Exercise releases a of the multitude of things it does. One of the very interesting brain things that it does is that it releases a type of chemical that moves into the brain that actually a break that crosses the blood-brain barrier and goes in the brain and helps to clean up the brain. So it helps to clean up toxic waste that we've built up through not controlling anxiety, not controlling our thoughts, not controlling toxic stress, not building our brain, not using those little neurons that were born in the morning, which builds up toxic waste. Kind of like uh, it's almost like a dental floss or cleaning your teeth a little bit exercise it goes and does a bit of a cleanup in the brain and and also through the whole body it's going to detox the body so it's vital that we do move somehow so it doesn't mean you have to go to the gym every day but you should move movement like i've got stairs in my house three floors of stairs run up the stairs don't walk up the stairs you know these stop every five you know every hour and do a plank if you're sitting for hours like i often do with my research i'll go every hour i'll either do planks or squats for five minutes you know it's that kind of philosophy so you build movement as a daily thing when it comes to eating people often ask me what are brain foods my answer is simply real food so whatever you and I've written a book called Think and Eat Yourself Smart, where I talk about food. So it's real food and, and real food is obviously organic, sustainable, farm to table, GMO free, chemical free, unprocessed, you know. So it's real food. I don't advocate a diet for the brain. I mean I'm I love keto, but I do keto 
with real food. But you can do anything that because keto doesn't work for other people, vegan, for vegetarian. They're, because of bio-individuality, I'm not um, a proponent of a diet. I'm a proponent of real food. Whatever diet works for you, eat real food. But the biggest key with eating is and exercise is mindful eating and mindful exercise. So, for example, if you're doing exercise but you're going in with the attitude of, oh, I hate this, you've immediately changed your DNA. You've changed the benefit you're going to get from that exercise and it's going to be like so much harder. Whereas if you're going saying, all right, I'm just going to do five minutes. It's all I can handle today and it's going to be great. You're going to get 100% more out of it. When it comes to eating, if you're eating this great organic, sustainable farm-to-table, whatever, wild, etc. Steak, I know you love steak. Um, and Not as much the, as I used to. <laughs> that you used to. I can't have it if, as much, yeah. Well, you could, you've got to control it. You see, because of the bio-individuality. But if you're eating that great food, the right amount of steak, et cetera, et cetera, and it's grass-fed and so on, but you're eating it with a feeling of anxiety or you're depressed or you're jealous or you're envious or anything toxic, you will affect, for example, one part of your digestive every part of your digestive system. This is the easiest to understand. Your pancreas, for example, secretes 20 different neuropeptides that are required for assimilation and digestion of that food. So here you're eating this great food, but you're going to lose up to 80% of the nutrition if you eat it in a bad mood or if you eat it jealous or if you eat it envious or if you eat it in a bad state. So rather calm down emotionally before you eat. It's better to fast, don't eat, and then eat when you can't. So there's some there's Well, some that, that's stuff. huge because it makes the case and embrace a diet that you actually like and a diet that's not going to make you feel guilty. And, and, and so if you, you know, if you're, I, I use the example, if you're going out to a birthday celebration, you're better off you know, having the cake and enjoying it versus stressing out about not having the cake. With that said, you probably shouldn't go to the birthday celebration every night and have the cake, although I don't think anyone's doing that right now. <laughs> um, no, they're trying to make cake at home. <laughs> but but, but these- I, I am curious, you mentioned keto. Is it so? Is it safe to say you're just a fan of, of healthy fats, whether it's avocados or the oils in terms of brain health? Yes, very much so. Your brain is 70% fat, so you do need the fats. And like cholesterol is very important because cholesterol is a, is a foundation for all the hormones. And your brain, the actual neurons are made of fat. And if you don't, and as you're thinking, like right now, we're thinking, we're generating energy. That energy burns the fat, so we have to replace the fat. So high fat, um, high good fats are obviously not, not heated fats, not the modern American, not the mad diet. I'm talking about your healthy fats. I'm a great proponent. We, everyone's anti-cholesterol, not everyone, I should say. Let me cancel that statement. I said it wrong. There's been a lot of teaching around for years that high cholesterol is bad. High cholesterol is a sign that it's like depression or anxiety, they're warning signals that something cholesterol itself is not bad. It's the fact that it's accumulated in an area where there's damage in your body. So it's giving you a, a signal that, hey, why did you, why is it there? There's something going on in that spot. So yes, I'm a proponent of of, um, of fats and uh, this keto works, but keto doesn't work for everyone. And then you no, get different versions of keto, ketoterian, and yep. you know, there's keto for women and keto. You, you've got to look at the bio individuality of each person and the age. And so there's very important because I, I just interviewed a doctor the other day who's a hormone specialist and OBGYN, and she's very pro keto, but she talks about how it's different if you're a teenager versus if you are pre-menstrual, if you are post-menopausal or if you're male. It's just very different. Yeah. So there's no one cookie cutter eating 
hundred percent agreed. Also, in terms of mental health, I'd put this in the more provocative bucket. But you, you did a, you did a whole podcast on this: sex, porn, masturbation, <laughs> I mental know. health. So let's talk about that. We don't. <laughs> oh gosh, that was with sex with Emily. She's yes. amazing. Yeah, you know, I just think that there's such a lot of um, a lot of. Um, inhibitions around the sexual environment and and it's such a natural part of who we are so I just think it's very important that we lift the lid a little bit so that's why I did that kind of podcast just to you know provocative every now and then I do like to throw out something but I just think you know it's like in a marriage if if in a, in a relationship if sex is a problem it's 95% of the problem but if it isn't a problem it's just you know, it's 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 like it just flows and happens. So I just think it's very important that we. It's so healthy. There are so many benefits of a good sexual life. It's very healthy for the brain. It's very healthy for longevity. Very healthy for relationships. I'm very pro people being open about sexuality and 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 exploring their sexuality and understanding how important it is for the brain. So that's why that's why I throw that out for mental health. I think it's very important. And what's interesting, Jay, uh, Jason, is in this day and age, we are finding. That the um, sexual activity of the of the younger generation is dropping off dramatically, and um, just things like um, having I mean I'm going to be very direct, but having orgasms and enjoying sex and that kind of thing has become quite an issue, which is affecting mental health because it's very intertwined with mental health. It's part of us. It, people are thinking of sex all the time because it creates such a bond between um, between partners. It's incredibly bonding. It's incredibly um, you you basically are wiring to each other's heads and you know, creates bonds and so on. And what we're finding is that with the uh, mental health, in the mental health world, the medications, a lot of the antidepressants that are, I mean, I'm just, I can, that's another whole discussion, but they, one of the main side effects of antidepressants, and I'm not at all pro-antidepressants because they reduce, they have three up to 3,000 side effects. And one of the main ones is reduced libido. And so many People as young as eight years of age are being put on antidepressants for years and years. And it's leading to messing up hormones terribly and messing up such a natural part of one's life. And a lot of people that I've spoken to and and patients of mine that have when I used to practice, that was massive. And the and the depression that sets around that kind of thing and the relationship issues. And so when you can start dealing with that and getting people to be more open, there's so much oppression on sexuality. And that's why I appreciate someone like Sex with Emily because um, Emily, she's she's open and helping us to talk about things that we need to speak about. So well, you hear about sex, but you often don't hear about porn. So can you no. unpack that one a little bit? You know, that's that's more her. That was more her strength than mine. So she she her her belief is that we that obviously not the unhealthy. I mean, the, she's very clear in her explanations about porn being, you know, these porn that's. Like if you're watching Outlanders, you know, like there's a, a between a husband and wife, and there's love, and you know, Outlanders a movie or movies that you see where the, where it's clean, sure, beautiful sexuality, where sexuality, where the body is celebrated, obviously where it's child porn and it's you know it's for obviously trafficking that is evil. I mean that is just pure and utter evil. So we're not talking about she's from what Emily was talking about was not that kind of that's evil and that's wrong and it's terrible and totally anti-trafficking, totally anti what is being done and and. The porn industry has been abused. Obviously, we all know that. But in terms of uh, porn, in terms of of helping a person, a 
a couple just to maybe people that have a lot of OBGYNs, a lot of that are that uh, people that come with sexual issues, a lot of them will actually recommend to watch something like a, a, a movie together, like maybe Outlanders and see that love and passion because it's it's seeing the body in a beautiful way and a beautiful light. And that's how I understand porn. Um, and so it's not the hard porn. And I think porn is such a terrible word. I would rather use the word celebrating the beauty of our anatomy and what we can do and how we can use our bodies to express love for each other and how beautiful the body, human body is. And that is very mentally healthy. So I prefer to see it like that. And if there's a movie that is beautifully done, that helps that and it helps the relationship. There's a lot of science behind that. We've helped uh, people with mental health in their relationships and so on. I think that's, but the obviously bad porn is a no go. Sure, so sure. I hate the word porn. I think porn, we should say porn is the bad stuff and then we should say celebrating the beauty of sexuality and human anatomy and, and the relationship should be, have another word. Sure. And masturbation as well was also in that provocative podcast. Yes, it was in that provocative podcast. And that's another area that she's more of an expert than I am because I haven't re I haven't studied the human brain and sexuality to that extent that I've been more on the learning side and things, but it was just interesting that understanding how your body works, which is really what masturbation is, it's understanding how that sexual response, which is so natural works is a way of you exploring your body so that you can have understand what works for you in a sexual relationship. And I think if it's done within that healthy context, I don't think it's wrong at all. You know, it helps a person to be able to understand their own sexuality. So I guess I would say as a result of uh, sexual health could be children. And so how can, how can we help our children become a little bit more resilient? Resilient in terms of everything. Yeah. Well, I I, th I think it's, well, I've got four kids and they're all teenage. I mean, they're all in their 20s now, 22, 23, 25, I have to think about that, 25 and 29. And they, you know, it's growing up, bringing up four kids in the world that I live in and the, the work that I do, which is incredibly busy. It's been a challenge to be, um, I'm not a traditional mom. And so I'm, I'm saying this all wrong. I don't think we should have these feminine roles and whatever. I'm very much for grow your purpose, et cetera, et cetera. There shouldn't be these defined roles. So both my husband and I in the business, we both brought our kids up together. And I think that's very balanced that um, there's obviously certain, I have a, this kind of relationship with my kids and my husband has his kind of relationship with the kids, which is very normal. So one of the things though that I found very important for resilience was because I traveled so much and because I wasn't there all the time and I was there as much as I could be was quality time. So I never went for quantity. I went for quality. And that has built resilience to the point where my 20-year-olds, my 20, 20 to 30-year-olds are my best friends. They consider me their best friend and their mom. They want to spend time with us. So it's a good sign when your kids want to spend time with you. It's um, that's a, So there's, there's a, a quality bonding that happens. There's an honesty that builds resilience. So when I've made a mistake, um, I'm very open about I did that wrong. When they, when I don't even know I've made a mistake, that we've created an environment where they can come and tell us, you you did this, it really hurt me. Um, you did this when I was three and I couldn't explain then, but I'm now 22 and I remember this and let's unpack this because you really messed up my life for a few years. That kind of environment we've created, so an open environment. Open environment, that builds resilience because they feel safe. You've got to create a safe space for them to talk. And around the safe space, I think it's very important that we also look at you've got to talk about the hard things. You've got to talk about sex. You've got to talk about, you've got to let them come to you. My kids would come and ask me questions and I would have to keep a straight face and think, I didn't even know that. 
<laughs> you know, that they've heard at school. But let's explore that together. Let's talk about it. I'd rather them come to a safe space and talk. So all their friends would come too. So we created this environment where we we could talk without judgment. And especially teenagers, you know, Jason, they did a, they did a study where they it's massive meta-analysis asking 13 to 18-year-olds, which is the most difficult of the entire human life cycle, it's the most difficult because of all the hormones and the changes and finding yourself and becoming who you know your autonomy and so on. And they and they asked these kids, what do you want most from your parents? And you know what they said? To be listened to. And that's another isn't that amazing? I think that's because we're so quick to judge as parents to say, I did it this way. Here's my fix it. We I did a post about this yesterday. We want to fix our kids, when we see them making the mistakes we made or making ones we didn't make, we want to but put them in bubble wrap so they don't get hurt. All these things, which are all natural instincts, but it's not good. We need to be, the way I explain resilience is we need to be like, um, you know, those are, uh, when people, tightrope, when they're walking on a tightrope and there's a, a safety net at the bottom. Parents are safety nets. You have to let your kids walk the tightrope. And when they fall, you're the safety net. But if you take that tightrope away and you make them stay in the safety net, they never learn. So you've got to let them fall and be there for them, but you can't fix them. Um, and But you've got to create the environment where they feel safe enough to explore and to fall. And then the other thing is, one of the things, if you have to ask my four kids, what they'll all say to you, they'll say that she taught us how to think. Um, and question and challenge. I, if we are in a restaurant, you will know my family because all of us are talking so loud. Our Italian blood comes out, but everything is a debate. They will. They never just accept a statement that I make or or a comment that we all. Everything's debated, and challenged, and questioned, and put back and forth. And that's what I've taught them to do. And it's taught them resilience in the hard times. And then the last thing I've done with them, which is which, and this is stuff that I've taught. Pay, done with my patients over the years too, is to um, to question to to bring in terms of the questioning, not just to accept things, but to continually question. The last thing that, that I've done is I taught them how to use their mind. I taught them how to learn. I taught them how to use the five steps to build their brain, how to manage, how to go through those steps to manage traumas and anxieties. So I gave them those skills from very young. I brought them up teaching them those. So. I love my it. Kids, well, my kids were my guinea pigs. and <laughs> Well, we've got two little guinea pigs of our own, and that, that is very, very helpful. Well, thank you, Caroline, for being such an incredible interview and for all the great work you are doing. Uh, we all, you know, there's so much happening with, with mental health right now. We could all use a little bit of brain building. So thank you so much. It's my pleasure. We, I think it's the, the future is positive. I don't think we should see we, – there's a lot going – people's – and you and I discussed this before, but just very quickly, people saying there's going to be a new mental health pandemic. There's a new pandemic. It's mental health. We don't have to be like that. If we collectivistically come together and see this as a chance for us to think – for the first time in years, people are actually thinking again and having to dig deep and go deep and look at reevaluate and all that kind of stuff. And that means good mental health. It's just kind of painful. So people are experiencing anxiety. And my courage, I encourage people to embrace, process, and reconceptualize because as you do that, you're going to come out on the other side of this adversity very strong. Amen. Amen. 